Good evening. Thanks for joining us tonight. This is our third and final night of this three-night mission on St. Joseph as we celebrate the year of St. Joseph here in our parish. Why don't we go ahead and start with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. So we are beginning our, our third night together, third night of our mission, looking at different mysteries from the life of St. Joseph. Yesterday, we looked a little bit at the presentation of the temple and how it teaches us that our children do not belong to us. Joseph's extraordinary loving in freedom and returning son back to um, God the Father, who is, of course, his true father. This possession and attachment, trying to offer uh, a challenge to all earthly fathers uh, to be able to love their own children in such radical freedom. But if we're going to look at all the different mysteries of Joseph's life, the biggest one, at least time-wise, is the one that we are going to focus on today. And that is the 30 years of hidden life at Nazareth. 30 years with Mary and Joseph hidden from the public eye. Now we can learn about this reality, that here's Jesus, 33 years on earth, 30 of them were hidden. 30 of them were completely ordinary. Nobody could tell that anything special was going on. There's a lot that we can learn from that, particularly the importance of living a simple life, an ordinary life. You don't need to work big miracles. You don't need to have an Instagram page that everybody follows. Holiness can be done in some very simple and ordinary ways. And so what do we know about this hidden life of Jesus, Mary, and Joseph at Nazareth? The truth is, Scripture really doesn't tell us anything except that Jesus was obedient to them. That Jesus was obedient both to Jesus, I mean both to Joseph and to Mary. And it's a great mystery there. Here is God, who is the creator of the universe, the Son of God, the Word through which all of creation came to be, and he was obedient to humans. He listened to them. He did for 30 years whatever they said. And he, of course, could have commanded the angels. But here, at the beginning of his life, he was obedient to the end, obedient to Pilate, something that a lot of us can spend some time meditating upon because we are a culture, even some of us as Catholics, who have a spirit of disobedience. We want to do what we want when we want. We claim our rights. We claim we have the freedom to do this. In reality, it is not the example that Christ gives to us. Pope Francis calls Joseph's uh, example, or Joseph's being a part of the Holy Family, a life in the shadows. Life in the shadows. 
that he was a shadow of God the Father to Jesus, an example of the Father's love and mercy, but still not in the spotlight, not gaining his all of his attention. You know, I kind of think to, to imagine what this life would have been like, particularly Joseph's relationship to Jesus, as Jesus was the Son of God. Guess what? He was the best kid ever. Never disobedient, never talked back, never stole money from Joseph's wallet. And then Mary, she's sinless, she's perfect, she is the best wife, kind, merciful. And so did Joseph, during this time, living with two basically perfect people, ever struggle? We talked a little bit about how Joseph potentially maybe felt like he didn't belong. And really, during these 30 years, did he feel that he did not belong? Some insecurity or comparison with Jesus and Mary. And so, I sort of thought about it, and I've said this before, because the fact is, in the Holy Family, he is the one who was not perfect, which means what? He was the patron saint of husbands, which means that he was always wrong whenever something didn't go correct. That's why he was always wrong. He was, he was again, you know, like the food is not hot enough. Can't blame Mary. Jesus leaves something around the, 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 the shop. You can't get mad at him. But sincerely, though, I mean, not just sort of making a joke about that. Over the years, seeing and experiencing the love and respect that he received as the father and the head of the household, both from Mary and Jesus, really, I'm sure, led him to be humble, to be able to be a leader, but one with great humility, one with great kindness, not learning it over. And the mercy and understanding, both Mary and Jesus realizing that Joseph wasn't perfect, that Joseph probably struggled with certain things, and they, in that love, tremendously merciful. And receiving that love and receiving that mercy, God willing, formed his heart. And as a result, because he was shown so much mercy and he was shown so much love, that he was able to show mercy to others whom he encountered. And this is part of a meditation of the Holy Family. And and why families today ought to, or families in all time, ought to reflect that same openness, that same love, that same mercy and compassion uh, that we see or we imagine we could have seen in the Holy Family. But my argument is more this, besides the fact that indeed Joseph possibly struggled with comparison feeling he didn't belong, or wondering what part he had to play in this great mystery as the only flawed, sinful, imperfect person. And the more I meditated on it, I really came to the conclusion that Joseph, as much as he may have struggled with that, was the happiest, most joyful man that probably, or at least married man, that ever walked the earth. Why? Well, as we talked about earlier, he was profoundly grateful for the gifts of Mary 
and Jesus that had been given to him. But the fact of the matter is, too, he had a kid who never talked back to him. He had a kid who was never disobedient. And he had a wife that never nagged him and never wanted the credit card to go spend all of his money. It's true. He was a joyful man, of course. Nah, we were just making a joke about that. I didn't want anyone to come kill me after our talk is over today. But there's some truth here. Joseph led this tremendously peaceful life. Again, I know how it is with guys. I have married guy friends. Imagine they're sitting around Joseph with his buddies and his friends are complaining about the wives and the kids and they need to get away from the house. And here's just Joseph smiling, loving life. I got no problems because of that home life that he would have experienced. And as a result, the joy and the happiness, the, the lack of stress probably that Joseph would endure. But granted, there's stress, I'm sure, wanting to provide for his family, but having that deep trust in the Lord. And as a result of that, because you didn't have a grumpy old husband, a grumpy old dad, that Jesus and Mary were even more joyful and able to share in that joy. And so the Holy Family, because of Joseph and Mary and Jesus, and living together was a really happy family, a really joyful family, and can be and should be an image of what family life should be to all of us. Now, five or six years ago, I gave a homily at Wisdom for the Holy Family that probably was one of the most well-received and most shared and talked about homilies that I've ever given. And my argument was this. And so often when we see pictures of the Holy Family or we imagine what the Holy Family would have been like, most people think it would be like a monastery. Everybody is quiet and praying all the time. Mary's walking around like this. She goes to her room, never talks to Joseph. It's praying and levitating all the time. And Jesus, of course, is in some corner communing with his father. And Joseph is just sitting around doing nothing. Or maybe Joseph decided to walk around doing this too. It's a false idea of what family would be like. It's nice. It's pious. Just like a lot of the times our ideas of who Mary was or who Jesus was sort of abstracts them or extracts them from any idea of what human life would be, from our own experience. Instead, no, we can use our own human experience in order to get some better understanding of what exactly life of the Holy Family would have been like. And so surely there would have been times of prayer, but there was also a lot of human affection, a lot of human love. Jesus loved to spend time with his parents. And then Joseph and Mary were friends. They loved each other. They were chaste, but they would have shared their hearts with each other. But I think if they were going to be the truly icon of what it means to be a holy family, I think of the holiest families that I know. And sometimes a family can look holy and, well, maybe there's some problems. And everybody has problems. There's no perfect family here. Even the one that looks the most ideal can often have a fair amount of skeletons in their closet. But the families that I know, that I am friends with and close with, 
that I believe are truly the holiest are also the ones that are the most joyful, or the ones that are the most genuinely happy. And so what I like to do is sort of propose some of these traits, the traits of a truly holy family. And these are the traits that I presented uh, five or six years ago, although I've edited them a, a little bit. And so while we're focusing on Joseph, Joseph is an integral part of this, but it still can illustrate for us what exactly a holy family is like. So I'm going to offer five of these traits. The first one is this, that I truly holy family, but let's just say the holy family, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, loved spending time with each other. They loved spending time with each other. That they were friends. They enjoyed each other's company. They didn't get aggravated with each other so often we do. And particularly, you've got to think that has to be the case because Jesus lived with them until he was 30 years old. It wasn't like some 30-year-olds today live in their parents' basements playing video games all day long and eating their food. It's like Ignatius Riley from the Confederacy of Dunces or something like that. No, they loved Jesus being there. Imagine the times they would have had conversations. Or I like to reflect on Jesus talking to Joseph as an adult, as a friend, as one that he has grown up with. Maybe because they enjoyed being with each other so much, spending time over meals and prayer, that Jesus decided to live at home until he was 30 years old. So that's the first trait. I think the Holy Family and any Holy Family, they should like to spend time with each other. Now granted, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph never got on each other's nerves, and sometimes as human flawed individuals, we're going to get on each other's nerves, and we need time apart. I'm not saying that women shouldn't have their lady friends and men shouldn't have their men friends and kids shouldn't be able to go do their stuff. You can't be cramped in the house all the time together. We, COVID showed us how fun that is. It's nice for the first few weeks, but after a while, no. You realize I'm not living with the Blessed Virgin Mary. I'm not living with St. Joseph. The second one is this. And again, I'm not saying there are other ones, certainly, that are not just these five, but I'm trying to pick five that maybe we don't think of that are going to be essential elements to a holy family. We hear a lot the family that prays together stays together. And we're going to talk about that in a few moments. But the one that I like to say is the family that plays together stays together. To be able to be playful, to be childlike, it's an extension of enjoying each other's company. But to be able to sort of put aside work, to put aside things that are serious. Families that like to have fun together. Imagine Jesus, Mary, and Joseph sitting around with a game night. Our own families who like to maybe travel on vacation, to go to the movie together. That was what we used to do when I was a kid. Time of play. Play is important for us as humans. It's a stress relief but also as a reflection of the joy and the childlike nature that the Lord calls us to. I'm sure many of you have seen Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, that scene when Jesus or Mary's having a memory or Jesus is having a memory and he 
builds a little table, and he's sitting there, and he sort of jokes around with his mother. That's a very human thing, a very real thing. And you could imagine over the course of Christ's life, there would have been numerous incidents like that, particularly our, our Joseph, maybe playing with Jesus, throwing him up in the air, throwing balls, I don't know, building whatever they built in the carpentry shop. These types of things are beautiful. And our own need as families to play. Because what happens is whenever we play, whatever anxiety or anxiousness or resentment that might be building up tends to be released. And so we can enjoy each other's company. And also, playfulness is what? It connects us to that childlike spirit that we are all called to have. We're going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. So the family that plays together stays together. The third one is that a truly holy family, and again, the holy family, is not closed in on itself. They're not walls around the family. They are open and welcoming of others. I think it's easy for us to imagine the, the holy family at Nazareth like they're in some type of a monastery, praying all the time. That's not the case at all. Again, we want to be able to protect our children. But I see a tendency, I've seen this for a while, of families, because of the threat of the exterior world, of their own insecurities and fears, kind of circle the wagons and cut off almost all contact with the exterior world. And that leads to you producing some pretty weird kids, sorry. It also leads to some strange behavior. We need to be able to protect our kids. We need to be able to, to sort of keep the unity of the family together. But you know, I'm not suggesting any of you watch this movie, but like Goodfellas or The Godfather, those mob films, there's a scene from Goodfellas when Lorraine Bracco's character talks about how all the, the mobsters, all the Goodfellas hung out with each other. They didn't have friends outside of the family. And she noticed that was weird, the same thing. We just watched Godfather 1 and Godfather 2 for the 500th time. They did not have friends outside of the family or business partners. It's a problem there when we close in the ranks. They were loving people, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, just as we are supposed to be loving people. And as a result, our hearts are open to others and a willingness to show them charity, to show them love, to show them kindness. Particularly, if I'm correct, the goodness of the Holy Family sort of showed itself in joy. Joy is diffusive of itself. It's a radiation of the love and the gratitude that we're living. And so people would have seen Joseph's joy, Mary's joy, Jesus' joy, and would have been attracted to it, would have wanted to come to the house, see what's going on, eat some of Mary's cooking. She never burnt any of the food because she was sinless. And so uh, people wanted to be there, and you could imagine the home was always open. The door was open for people to come in, to sit and visit. And they were willing, just like so many families here in southern Louisiana, to take guests in, to take friends in, to feed them, to give them a place to relax and to feel loved. You can imagine it's the place that all the neighborhood kids played except Jesus maybe beat them at games all the time, but he didn't do that, no. He was, that was supposed to be funny, but it's not. some of my jokes work today. Lost all the time. Father thinks that's funny. I can hear him laughing in the back. 
They were a leaven to the community. They brought life, just as our families are too. They walk around dour all the time and sad and never talk to anybody and, and look like you're zombies or something. That's not, that's not what we're called to. We're supposed to be joyful and draw others to Christ. Fourth is the life-giving practice of the faith. Now, of course, here Jesus, Mary, and Joseph would have practiced the Jewish faith, the rituals and the holidays and all of the celebrations. And Joseph was a man of faith. Joseph brought his family to the temple. He practiced the faith. He led the rituals. You know, this is what I love about St. Joseph, and it's something that I've talked about before. Today, a lot of men have this idea that faith is for women. Well, you bring the kids to church, I'm going to sit around and watch football. That's not what Joseph was like. Joseph was a real man. Joseph was willing to be that leader and to be able to bring his family to worship. And they raise the, Jesus in the faith, they practice the faith, and holy families do that. Their Catholic faith is essential to who they are, but it is not a bunch of rules imposed from the exterior. It's something lived from the heart. And so often, again, I'm not trying to, to, to point fingers here, but we see this. Not only the walls come up around families, but this idea of Catholicism is this anachronistic thing where the rules are forced and the kids, because there's so much strictness, end up kicking out and rebelling. Again, maybe when we're young, we're a little stricter than when we get older, when we're like, oh, just as long as you don't kill yourself, kids, I don't care what you do, that it's the risk that we run of pushing and shoving the faith down our children's throat. That simply doesn't work today. We want to respect their freedom, as we talked about, encourage them to think to ask questions, to build trusting relationships with our children. Jesus would have trusted Joseph. There would have been a strong bond of love and friendship there. But the real way to do this is there has to be a true spirit of prayer, where parents actually pray and teach their kids and introduce them to the mystery of prayer, not just saying prayers but really praying from the heart and letting the Spirit guide the life of the family. And parents, you can't teach your kids to pray if you don't pray yourself. And then fifth and finally, and this is, I would say, probably the most important and is going to be the, 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 the place that I launch the rest of the talk. Uh, the Holy Family and truly Holy Families there is the presence of transformative and redeeming love. Imagine if you were just somebody off the street, maybe you were having a bad day and you lived in the neighborhood, and you walked into that house. The attentiveness to Jesus, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph would have had to you to be able to empathize, to see that you were struggling, and the love that they would have showed to you could have transformed your life. A redemptive experience being loved by these people. I'm sure all of us have had some experience of somebody who loves very well. Uh, it could be a friend, a family member, a spouse, and just simply being loved by them transforms our minds 
and transforms our hearts. And so that's what that love present in the Holy Family was like, and the love present in all real families is like. But here in our families, of course, there's going to have to be not just love, but it's going to have to be merciful love, a willingness to forgive, to show mercy, and to say, yeah, you messed up, but I still love you anyhow, to not constantly bring it up, to not let resentment build up. Imagine a family that is like that, how it would change individuals in the family and those who came into contact with that love. But it's not just loving. And this is something that I've talked about over the course of the past year in different retreats that I've given, most of them, of course, virtual retreats. Love is great, and there's something about loving another person, but it's very easy, and I've heard the young people say this, Father, I know God loves me. I know my parents love me. I know you love me, but this is your responsibility. God's supposed to love us. God, our parents are supposed to love us. You're supposed to love us. But I sometimes feel, as they say, that the Lord or my parents don't really like me. I don't enjoy being in my presence. So the truth is, as much as we need to show love for others and love for our children, we need to be willing to go above and beyond that and actually delighting in the other. That the other person delights us. Our face lights up when we see them. Not only do they delight us, but we, in loving them, enjoy giving them pleasure. We take great joy in having and watching them delight in something. And being filled with joy and the joy of being loved. One of my favorite passages from the writings of Pope Francis from his letter Amoris Laetitia, The Joy of Love. And I think it's a beautiful idea he shares. I'm going to share the paragraph. It's also because he refers to one of my favorite movies, which is his favorite movie, so we have something in common. Um, and it's paragraph 129, if anyone wants to read it. He says, Since we were made for love, we know that there is no greater joy than that of sharing good things, sharing something so that another person may rejoice and delight in it. And so he quotes the book of Sirach, chapter 14, verse 16. Give, take, and treat yourself well. The most intense joys in life arise when we are able to elicit joy in others as a foretaste of heaven. As in we, through our love or our gifts or whatever it is, see that we bring joy to the life of others. Like the parent who gives the gift to the child and sees his face or her face light up on Christmas. We take great joy in that, and that's a good thing. It's not a bad thing at all. He says we can think of the lovely scene from the film Babette's Feast. If you have not seen that film, you should watch it. When the generous cook receives a grateful hug and praise, ah, how you will delight the angels. It is a joy and a great consolation to bring delight to others, to see them enjoying themselves. This joy, the fruit of eternal love, is not that of the vain and self-centered, but of lovers who delight in the good of those whom they love, who give freely to them, and thus bear good fruit. It's a beautiful quote. The joy of giving something out of love to another person and seeing the joy they have 
But I think it's more than that. It's not just, hey, here's a gift that you're going to really like. I'm so happy to see you enjoying it. But actually delighting in them, letting them know that you are happy to see them, that you enjoy being in their presence. It's one of the things that I've learned a lot from my time as a campus minister. Is that I, you can sign up, the kids can sign up to come see me for counseling, for spiritual direction. And I do my best to really spend time with them. And a lot of the times in a campus ministry, they'll come and watch movies, we'll do stuff together. And I try my best, even though sometimes I'm not in the best of moods, to show them that I really enjoy being with them. Even if it's just having a cup of coffee, talking about how the day went. And I've seen it, that a lot of them feel that they are overlooked by their parents. Their parents don't see them. Their parents don't take delight in them. They are a burden to their parents. Now, whether or not that's the case or not, they at least perceive it in that way. And so, for us to be able to delight in our children, to delight in others, it's an affirmation of their being. So imagine how Joseph and Mary delighted in Jesus and Jesus in them because it's sort of a positive feedback loop. If we delight in another person, and they delight in us. And so it's that joy uh, that comes from loves. And so what if we did it more when we encountered others, affirming their being by saying, it's so good to see you. We're gonna fall sometimes, but this is so important because this type of love is one that is transformative. It is redeeming for a person who believes they are unloved and unlovable to know that they are loved and delighted in. This is more effective than any catechism lesson, than any Bible verse you're gonna to read to someone. It's relationship. That's what changes minds and changes hearts. But it's this last trait of the Holy Family, that one of the presence of redeeming and sort of life-affirming love that takes me to the heart of my reflection today on St. Joseph. What I've tried to do is look at different aspects of who St. Joseph was. The first is at St. Joseph, who is the man who accepts reality as it is. St. Joseph is the man who is filled with joy and filled with wonder. What about today? What can this hidden life teach us about St. Joseph? And maybe a title that we can allocate to him. A few weeks ago, in one of my homilies, I talked about genetics and about DNA and how all of us carry these genetic traits of our parents, the chromosomes that are passed on to us, and that you can look at yourself or look at your children and see yourself in your children, or I can see my parents in me. And this is very, very true. We pass on our DNA. But the reality is we also have a spiritual DNA that we inherit and that we can pass on. You could say that maybe somebody who is a, a member of the Dominican order, they take the spiritual DNA of St. Dominic. Many of you may have been taught by Jesuits or different religious orders. Well, you're going to have the DNA of the founder in you. But we don't have to have it on that big of a level. 
It could be individuals who shared their faith with us, a catechism teacher that was very important to us, a friend who shared the faith, a priest, a religious, whatever it is, someone who shared their faith, but also someone who simply loved us and loved us well, who taught us how to love, how to live our faith. And so, we can see that Jesus would have inherited completely the DNA of Mary, because otherwise, you know, he would not have been miraculously conceived. And so when you looked at Jesus, you could see traits of Mary physically, and that's what, one of the things that you saw, the icons of the early church. Once they came to see, got past this idea of Jesus as a philosopher, when the image of the Shroud of Turin, arguably the face of Jesus, the the Mandilion was seen, icons began in about the fourth century to be modeled off of that. And then when they began to make images of Mary, they modeled it off of the image of Jesus, the same traits, the long nose, the big eyes, the, the sort of long face that we see in icons, because if you saw Jesus, you could see the face of what Mary might have looked like. But what type of traits, though, did Mary and Jesus leave on Jesus in loving him for all of those years, 30 years at home? Because Jesus wasn't just some sort of a, he had his divinity, but he also had his humanity. He had his divine knowledge and his divine will, but he had the same thing in his humanity. And so he could learn, he could be transformed, he could be changed. What sort of traits did Mary and Joseph leave? What was his spiritual DNA? Uh, we can understand that, but what would it have been like for Jesus and Mary to love Joseph? What kind of imprint, what kind of spiritual DNA would Joseph have received? We could see that he would have understood and been transformed by receiving the merciful love, the compassion of Jesus and Mary and as a result, hopefully able to share it with others. But I think one of the big things is that Mary would have left a very significant imprint on Joseph, that he would have had a very strong Marian dimension to his spirituality and to his love. Kind, tender, compassionate, vulnerable, receptive. He would have still been a man, a strong, courageous protector. We've already talked about that. But also, he would have had that feminine Marian dimension because his heart would have been transformed by that. And so it gets us to another reflection from Pope Francis. I've really tried to, to anchor each three of the talks in a quote or a passage from his letter, Patris Corde, on St. Joseph. And so this is the one today. When Francis describes Joseph, he talks about the tenderness of Joseph as a father and as a husband. This idea of being tender in love is something that in our culture we do not often associate with men. We see it as something weak. But yet he talks about how Joseph would have been a reflection to Jesus and Mary of the tender compassionate love of the Father. And so he says, and he's sort of talking about this in a larger context, 
The evil one makes us see and condemn our frailty, whereas the Spirit brings it to light with tender love. Tenderness is the best way to touch the frailty within us. Pointing fingers and judging others are frequently signs of an inability to accept our own weaknesses, our own frailty. Only tender love will save us from the stares of the accuser. This is why it's so important to encounter God's mercy, especially in the sacrament of reconciliation, where we experience his truth and tenderness. Paradoxically, the evil one can also speak the truth to us, and he does so only to condemn us. We know that God's truth does not condemn, but instead welcomes, embraces, sustains, and forgives us. The truth always presents itself to us like the merciful Father in Jesus' parable, the prodigal son. It comes out to meet us, restores our dignity, sets us back on our feet, and rejoices for us. For as the Father says, this, is my, my, this my son was dead and is alive again. He is lost and is found. Again, so he's sort of being a little bit verbose here, but still, all of these qualities and traits of mercy and tenderness are things that Joseph would have had and I believe would have received a great imprint from the love that he had from Mary. And I think it's something, as I said, we could see in more of us today, particularly more men. I see it and I hear it a lot about fathers who are too harsh and more like dictators or coaches to their kids, emotionally distant, not showing the tenderness and compassion. And so what it does is it leads children to grow up and be very, very hard on themselves, unforgiving to see themselves as unloved or as unloving. And fathers and mothers, but here fathers are called to show the tender love of God the Father, that fathers and men should not be afraid to have a Marian dimension, a receptive, a listening, a compassionate dimension to their love. But so, circling back to what I mentioned before, imagine what impact Joseph's love would have had on Jesus. As I said, that Jesus didn't come out of the womb as some wunderkind, some perfect child, but he had his humanity formed, as Scripture tells us. He grew in wisdom and statue and in favor with God. He learned his prayers. He could learn things in his human intellect. He was formed in that. And so, my argument is, if you look at Jesus and how Jesus treated others, as how he loved others in his humanity, you can see the spiritual DNA of Mary and of Joseph. You look at the Lord, you can see the spiritual DNA that his mother and foster father would have left in him. We know how Jesus treated others. He listened. He was compassionate. He was merciful. He was tender. You can see the traces of G Joseph in Jesus. Again, I'm not trying to deny that Jesus wasn't a man, but this idea of masculinity that we can often have uh, from our own society, a lot of it, of course, is anchored in our biology and testosterone. These things are important. The man is the protector and the defender. 
And there also needs to be that Marian side, a side that Joseph had, a side that Jesus had. So in conclusion, conclusion of this talk today and conclusion of our time together, uh, there's so many other reflections on Joseph's life that I could give. And I promise I will send the link to Father Brent Smith from those other four talks that I gave. And so you can kind of look at all seven of these mysteries of Joseph's life and come to reflect on them. But what I want to do is, is I want to go back to the first night and closing this up. And this idea of the year of St. Joseph is being important for the year we're living in, the year of the pandemic, the year where things didn't go as planned. But have you been paying attention to the news over the course of the past several weeks? And again, it's been there in some way, shape, or form over the course of this whole past year. We see that in our nation, there is a lot of strife. There's a lot of discord. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of unwillingness to listen. There's a lot of finger pointing and blaming. There's a lot of revolt. Most of us, if you pay attention, are, do certainly worry about the future, about our nation. And that's why I think devotion to Joseph is so crucial probably particularly over the course of the coming next several weeks, yes, to intercede for us, to protect us, our families, our church, and our nation, but more importantly, to give us an example and to form us with his wife Mary, both men and women, to be more tender, compassionate, understanding, and receptive to others. Fine, we've still got to have boundaries. We've got to call a spade a spade. But if everybody is at each other's throat all the time, it is not going to end up well. We've got to be able to admit that, hey, we don't have all the answers. The other side is not evil. And to be able to sit down and talk and try to show some tenderness. There's too much anger. There's too much hatred. There's too much going at each other's throats. We need to be willing to work for unity. We're not always going to agree with each other as Catholics, as Christians, and as Americans, but we've got to find some way to put aside our anger, our resentment, our prejudices, and to be able to sit and try to talk about things and come up with some type of a solution or some type of a compromise. And I think the more our hearts are conformed to Joseph, our minds are conformed to Joseph, the easier it will be for us to do that. And so we have this year of St. Joseph is not a sign of condemnation, but it's a sign of great hope. Joseph never gave up. He pressed forward. He found solutions. He remained tender and loving and merciful in the same way we are called to do. So let's close with a prayer. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this mission. Thank you for the gifts that you have given to all of us as Christians and as Catholics, and particularly to this parish of St. Joseph. Continue, Heavenly Father, to conform our hearts, to allow the Spirit to allow us to imitate and come to know Joseph's love for us. 
We also ask for a closeness to his mother, to our mother, Mary, his wife, uh, that she may transform our hearts as he did the heart of Joseph. And so during this year of St. Joseph in our own lives, our families, our parish, our church, our nation, our world, we may strive for peace, reconciliation, and unity. We ask this as we ask all things through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So once again, uh, thank everybody for coming. I uh, really appreciate on these chilly nights to come um, to listen to me. I want to thank Father for inviting me, our good friend Dave Murgis for recording this. Uh, so hope everybody has a great season leading up to Mardi Gras and a great, wonderful year of St. Joseph. I'll close and leave you with a blessing. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Go in peace. Have a great night. Have a great week.